Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tortoise. Hello, it's Basha here and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. This week, we're trying to uncover the real story about Prince Harry, not the one in his memoir or his Netflix doc. We aren't interested in the petty politics of royal life, the drugs or the having sex in a field. Well, not that interested. We want to know about the story that emerges if you dig into the documents that Prince Harry has submitted to the English High Court. My colleague, Paul Caruana Galizia, has done just that. And as you'll hear, the story that emerges suggests that his argument with his family is just a sideshow. The main event is his case against the tabloid press, what Harry calls his life's work. Over to Paul in The Prince Against the Press. It's the early hours of 31st August 1997 and the black Mercedes saloon is speeding through central Paris towards the Pont de l'Alma tunnel. On board are Princess Diana, her boyfriend Dodie Fayed, and her bodyguard Trevor Rees-Jones. The driver is Henri Paul. The car is being pursued by paparazzi on motorbikes, desperate for a shot of Diana and her latest boyfriend. For the photographers... It's a pursuit that has lasted all summer. It's taken them from Dodi's villa in Saint-Tropez to his luxury yacht in the Mediterranean and now to a tunnel beneath a Parisian bridge. You know how this story ends. Our thoughts and prayers are with Princess Diana's family. In particular, her two sons, the two boys. Prince Harry is just 12 when his mother dies. We are today a nation in Britain in a state of shock, in mourning, in grief. A British inquest concludes that the crash was caused by the grossly negligent driver, Henri Paul, who'd been drinking that night. And, crucially, by the paparazzi photographers who are pursuing the car. Of driving back into London from being in the country for a weekend, um, I would have paparazzi literally jump on the bonnet of the car. And I physically couldn't see anything. When you've actually experienced the same thing which you assume your mother's driver was experiencing at the time, then it's really hard to, I guess, understand how some people have come away with the conclusions of that night and that the people that were predominantly responsible for it all got away with it. In his memoir, Spare, he recounts how years later he was driven through the straight, 150-metre-long tunnel at the same speed as his mother's car. How he struggles to believe that the accident was mainly the fault of the driver. 
Even if the man had been drinking, even if he was shit-faced, he wouldn't have had any trouble navigating that short tunnel. Unless perhaps the chase had blinded him. Why were those perhaps not more roundly blamed? Why were they not in jail? Who sent them? And why were they not in jail? For Prince Harry, the paparazzi, the newspaper editors, tabloid reporters and proprietors are all to blame. And he has them in his sights. The pages of Spare are filled with this visceral hatred. But that's not the story we read in the papers when the book was published. Perhaps it's inevitable that the journalists writing about Harry don't report how much he has to say about their papers, their editors, their bosses. Because the people framing Harry's story are, although they don't always tell you, the objects of it. The British press sells us the Harry and Meghan story as a battle between the brothers, a fight with the firm, a war of the wives, a family soap opera. And there's definitely some of that. But there's another fight playing out. There are clues in the pages of Spare, but the real detail can be found in documents submitted by Harry to the English High Court. Read these and you realise his argument with his family is just a sideshow. The main event is his case against Fleet Street. Moving the the mission of changing the media landscape within the UK from being personal to my life's work. His life's work is now a legal battle he's waging from his mansion in Santa Barbara in California against the British press. There have been some skirmishes already. Prince Harry has settled one defamation suit against Associated Newspapers, which publishes the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday, and another one is ongoing. But his key battles, the ones which feel like the real beginning of his life's work, are just ahead of him. They're the privacy claims he's joined against Mirror Group newspapers, News Group, that's Rupert Murdoch's company which publishes The Sun and used to publish The News of the World, and, again, Associated Newspapers. All those actions are headed to court within the next 12 months. Along with other claimants, including the likes of Doreen Lawrence, Elton John and David Furnish, Liz Hurley and Sadie Frost, Prince Harry is making audacious claims that for more than two decades, the tabloids routinely and ruthlessly breached his privacy. There are allegations that tabloid journalists illegally accessed mobile phone voicemails to a greater extent than we ever knew. It details 18 calls from Glenn Mulcair's phone to Harry's mobile, nine from Clive Goodman's, and in all, from all private investigators or journalists, 59 calls made to his phone between the 14th of February 2005 and the 3rd of June 2006. And there's more. Well, there's allegations of landline tapping at all the papers, so News of the World, Sun, also the Mirror papers, Daily Mirror, Sunday Mirror, People, and also the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. There's landline tapping, allegations of tracking devices being placed in cars, and of rooms being bugged. What about listening devices? Yeah, bugging. Yeah. So uh, which titles? Which titles? So, so that 
Again, that was across a range of titles. And there are even allegations that Newsgroup systematically covered up its behaviour to stop claimants from ever finding out and from filing legal claims. All the newspaper groups strongly refute all these allegations. But some of the journalists and private investigators who once spied on Prince Harry, his girlfriends, brother and parents, have now switched sides. They are supporting claimants like Prince Harry against their old employers. And you could potentially be in court as a witness. Yeah, I'd be happy to give evidence, yeah. And, starting this summer, they could appear in court as witnesses, testifying to the distress and damage that Prince Harry claims the tabloids inflicted on him over decades. So, if you think The Harry Show, the best-selling memoir, the Netflix documentary, the rounds of television interviews, is over, you're wrong. It's only just begun. I'm Paul Caruana-Galizia from Tortoise. This is the Slow Newscast. Harry, the Prince against the Press. The particulars of claim in any court case tell a story. What's alleged to have happened and who does the claimant hold responsible? What I've tried to do by digging into Prince Harry's claims is to understand his story. A single one of the court cases he's involved in might not tell me the whole of that tale. But what if I take them in the round? So much of the saga of what Prince Harry says he suffered at the hands of the press is there in the allegations he submitted to the English High Court. It's a question of piecing it together. There might even be clues about what he's trying to achieve. What's the aim of this campaign he calls his life's work? There's only one place to start, and it's with the particulars of claim. I suppose the clear things we've got to get across are the fact that this is not just about phone hacking. Yes. That that there's more to it. I'm in the studio with my producer, Katie Gunning, trying to make sense of all the legal documents. Finishes as late as 2011. We're beginning with the generic claim lodged against Mirror Group newspapers, or MGN. Prince Harry's not the only claimant. He jumped on board in 2019 with a group that now includes Kerry Katona, Ian Wright, Alan Yentob and many others. Well, this one, 54 pages worth in the, in the Mirror's particulars of claim... Um, Particulars of claims set out the core allegations of a case. A generic one is quite unusual. It's only used when there's so much material that's relevant to so many different claimants. It's basically a legal document that sets out the facts common to all of them. So the time frame's interesting. So right at the beginning of their particulars of claim, there's a paragraph which says, the claimant's case is that the use of voicemail interception, blagging and the unlawful obtaining of private information through the instruction of private investigators, blaggers and others was both habitual and widespread across all three of the MGM titles. 
And then it says not only from 1998 until 2007, but it widens that out and it says it starts as early as 1991 and continuing until even as late as at least 2011. Incredible. Prince Harry and the other claimants are alleging an industrial scale of interference in people's personal lives across two decades and that senior executives took steps to lie about or conceal evidence of these unlawful activities. Unlawful activities that go way beyond listening to voicemails. So they say, by methods including the interception of landline phone calls, landline and mobile voicemail interception, the interception of phone calls made using analogue technology, the placing of bugs in or near to rooms and residences, and the planting of bugs and or tracking devices on cars. The phone hacking scandal blew up in 2011, and the Leveson inquiry started that same year. Leveson dug deep into hacking, but the bugs, the tracking that Prince Harry's alleging here, that's all new. We've also got the documents for the claim against the news group. And is the period similar, do they say? So Newsgroup, it's a similar timescale. They're alleging that this, these practices were habitual and widespread from at least as early as 1996. The generic claim against Newsgroup, which included The Sun and the News of the World, alleges that the unlawful obtaining of private information began in 1996. For the Mirror Group, it's 1991. These star dates stretch allegations of unlawful tabloid behaviour back by around a decade from what we previously knew. Both News and Mirror Group have filed defences to these generic claims denying unlawful information gathering, or at least any knowledge of it. Prince Harry was still a child when the unlawful information gathering is alleged to have started. In his personal claims against news and mirror groups, he focuses on the period from 1996 to 2011, from when he was aged 11 to 27. But tabloid interest in his life ramped up in the early 2000s. He makes multiple allegations of phone hacking. 18 calls from Glenn Mulcair's phone to Harry's mobile, nine from Clive Goodman's, and in all, from all private investigators or journalists 59 calls made to his phone between the 14th of February 2005 and the 3rd of June 2006. Both of his own personal mobile phone and the phones of people he knew. The biggest number is to someone called Helen Asprey. She was the private secretary to the princes and there are allegations that her phone was called 315 times Whoa. between the beginning of 2004 and August 2006. The detail in Prince Harry's claim is extraordinary. And much of it is new. And that's just the voicemail interception. Get to this section. So this is all private investigator work relating to the claimant. And then there are... Um, I counted them. There are 14 pages of itemised... There are pages and pages of allegations relating to the use of private investigators to collect personal information on Prince Harry. And there's a name that really jumps out. It's all over Prince Harry's claim against Newsgroup. 
Chelsea Davy. She was in an on-off relationship with Prince Harry between 2004 and 2010. In Prince Harry's telling, the tabloids both caused the turbulence and feasted on it. This was Prince Harry's first big encounter with the press in his own right, not as Diana's son, and he treats it as a searing experience. There are pages about it in his book, and it looms large in the particulars of claim. If his mother's death is chapter one in Harry's story, this is chapter two. And the graphic illustration of how far he says some newspapers were prepared to go to get the jump on their rivals. Some of the allegations in the particulars of claim relating to Chelsea Davy have been aired before. For example, a 2006 article after the prince visited a lap dancing bar headlined Chelsea Tears Strip of Harry. It came up in 2014 when Clive Goodman, the News of the World royal correspondent, was on trial for phone hacking. Now it features in Prince Harry's claim. Here's how the paper wrote it up. Yesterday, the repentant prince took an ear-bashing phone call as news broke. It's Chelsea. How could you? I see you had a lovely time without me. But I miss you so much, you big ginger, and I want you to know I love you, said a hysterical voice. Luckily, the caller was Joker brother Prince William. He thought the whole episode was hilarious and decided to take the mickey by putting on a high-pitched South African accent like Chelsea's. So the amazing thing about this is that there's, it's almost impossible to think of another way other than intercepting his voicemails that they could have learned the exact words. So that allegation isn't new, but many of them are, and come with a lot of detail. In Prince Harry's claim against Mirror Group, he alleges four calls were made by the group's journalists to Chelsea Davies' two landline numbers in South Africa between 2007 and 2009. All four were under a minute long, in fact, just a few seconds in duration. That's a pattern which suggests they might have been attempts at phone hacking. Prince Harry alleges another three calls were made by Mirror Journalist to Chelsea Davies' South African mobile number, all on the same day, and less than a second long, another telltale sign of an attempt at voicemail interception. A day after these calls, the following articles appeared in Mirror Publications. Chelsea's harried enough. And he just loves boozing and the army. She is fed up and is heading home. Another day later, another article. Chelsea breakup was on cards. And then... There are the payment records. It does claim that there are a total of 155 payment records from the Mirror Group, two private investigators that relate to him and his associates, and they range from hundreds to thousands of pounds. Of those 155 payments, Prince Harry alleges six were for information on Chelsea Davy. In his claim against News Group, meanwhile, he says there are around 130 such payment records for information on Chelsea Davy, including the location of her relatives, 
her holiday plans and her travel arrangements. It was driving her crazy. She couldn't imagine how they always knew where she was and where she'd be. She was freaking out. I talked it over with Marco, who advised me to ask Chelsea's brother to check the underside of the car. Sure enough, tracking device. Marco and I were able to tell her brother exactly what to check for and where, because it had happened to so many other people around me. So not just the phone hacking of old, and not just tracking devices either. Were listening devices used in any Harry-related stories that you know of? Yeah, so there's a there's one private investigator who alleges that he used landline taps and bugs on Prince Harry's associates, you know, girlfriends, friends. That's Graham Johnson, who was a reporter for the News of the World and went on to be the Sunday Mirror's investigations editor. We'll hear more from him later. The private investigator he mentioned is a witness for the claimants in their case against associated newspapers. This is him. There was a lot of surveillance went on on Chelsea Daily, on her phones, on the comms, medical records, handshake abortion, sexual diseases, ex-boyfriends, vet them, check them. Of the three court cases coming up, the one involving associated newspapers who published the Mail and the Mail on Sunday is the one we know least about. For the simple reason that Associated have asked the court to block public access to the case. They're making that argument on two grounds. First, what's called a limitation defence. I asked Tamsin Allen, head of media and information law at Bindman's, who's worked on a lot of phone hacking claims for MPs, what she thought of it. And they may say this is all too long ago, you've known about it for ages, you've got to move promptly in these sort of cases. But very often the answer to that will be, well, how are we supposed to know when you're doing something secret and underhand when the perpetrator hid what they were doing, hid evidence, deleted evidence, destroyed evidence, then the court will be sympathetic about extending the time limits. Associated second argument is that a central piece of evidence in the claim was taken from the Leveson public inquiry, where it was subject to a restriction order, which means that unless the claimants get permission from the UK government to use the evidence in their case, then they can't. We understand that this evidence refers to multiple alleged payments by the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday to a number of different private investigators. How much, if any of that, was to do with Chelsea Davy, we don't yet know. But we do know from Spare and from the particulars of claim in the other two court cases that, to this day, Prince Harry sees the way Chelsea Davy was treated as a crucial piece of evidence, a crucial piece of ammunition in his war against the press and a formative experience in his life. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, Tortoise listener. Are you on top of the news or is it on top of you? Don't worry, we've got the solution. Paper Cuts is the fast, funny daily podcast where we look at the wonder and weirdness of the British press. I'm Miranda Sawyer and every weekday I'm joined by top comedians and smart journalists for a roller coaster ride through the daily papers. Tune in and we'll bring you the biggest, the weirdest and the most entertaining stories of the day in one handy half-hour package. That's Paper Cuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Subscribe on your favourite app. One of the challenges in reporting this story is understanding properly what the newspapers and their owners say in their defence. They've never been particularly vocal, and, with those court cases coming up, they're even tighter-lipped than ever at the moment. So it helps sometimes to go back to hear what they had to say when they were obliged to speak, at the Leveson inquiry, and even before then. In March 2003, the editor of The Sun, Rebecca Brooks, appeared alongside the editor of The News of the World, Andy Coulson, in front of Parliament's Select Committee on Culture, Media and Sport. And, because it was still two years before the scandal of tabloid misbehaviour caught the world's attention, she was candid. Do either of your newspapers ever use private detectives, ever bug or pay the police? If I, if, I just, if I just give you um, one example... Rebecca Brooks gives an example of a story that the News of the World wanted to check out, about a woman who, they were told, was selling her four underage daughters for sex. We used um, a listening device because we sent somebody in um, who had a listening device on them. The woman who was selling her daughters did not know that. That was subterfuge. You know, he's a reporter. He didn't declare he was a reporter. He needed to get into the house... The listening device was then used. So, yes, and, and, and sometimes um, that is necessary. But so, It's just the one element of whether you ever pay the police for information. Yeah. We have paid the police um, for information in the past, and it's been... And will you do it in the future? It depends we on... We operate within the code and within the law, and if there's a clear public interest, then we're then in the same, so the same holds for, for private detectives, for subterfuge, for video bags, whatever you want to talk about. It's illegal it's, for it's, police officers within, to receive within, payments. No, 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 we don't. As I just said, within the law. Two years after Rebecca Brooks and Andy Coulson's evidence to Parliament, in 2005, the first allegations emerged that tabloid journalists and private investigators were acquiring personal information unlawfully. And they emerged within the world of the royals. 
the journalist Tom Bradby, a friend of Princess Harry and William, noticed that private voicemails he'd left on royal phones had been quoted in the news of the world. He alerted the palace, and they called the police. A few months later, the News of the World's royal correspondent Clive Goodman and the private investigator Glenn Mulcair were arrested. And what did you think in that moment? Nothing. Nothing. I just thought... Because there was much... I knew, I knew much worse things, much worse things than that. That's Graham Johnson, who resigned from the News of the World after making up a story about the beast of Bodmin and who then worked for the Sunday Mirror. He was convicted of phone hacking. Phone hacking was like a, a kid's playground thing. What are the worst things? Well, the kind of... The, the black operations, if you like, were... The, the papers would target someone unjustifiably and literally destroy their lives. Those black ops were hard to prove. The thing about phone hacking is that it left a trail of evidence. It left billing data. It left private investigator notes. It left a payment trail. It left all these things which someone, you know, lawyers and Guardian journalists could measure and follow and find out about. And the police too. And, eventually, Prince Harry. The particulars of claim are peppered with evidence from those payment trails. A wider police investigation into phone hacking, the one that led to charges against Rebecca Brooks and Andy Coulson, finally got underway in 2011. That was the year The Guardian reported that the voicemails of the murdered schoolgirl Millie Dowler had been hacked, the case that led to the government convening the Leveson Inquiry. The judge sharing it, Brian Leveson, called Fleet Street editors to give evidence. Paul Dacre was then the editor of the Daily Mail. He's now editor-in-chief of Associated Newspapers, the group that owns both the mail titles. The inquiry heard evidence that Associated used private investigators, but Paul Dacre was clear about phone hacking. Having made extensive inquiries into his newspaper's practices and held an inquiry that phone hacking was not practiced by the Mail on Sunday or the Daily Mail. You know that because I gave this inquiry my unequivocal, unequivocal assurances on that last earlier in the week. Rebecca Brooks, who by this time was the CEO of News International, wasn't asked about phone hacking at the inquiry because she was under police investigation. But looking back on it now, some of the most revealing evidence at Leveson came from Pierce Morgan. He was the editor of the News of the World in the mid-90s and then became the editor of the Daily Mirror from 1995 to 2004. Wasn't it your responsibility as editor to be aware of what your journalists were doing, at least in general terms? I would say the average editor is probably aware of about 5% of what his journalists are up to at any given time on every newspaper. Lead counsel to the inquiry, Robert Jay, pushed Piers Morgan on his knowledge of phone hacking. Oh, come on, Mr Morgan, Your, your newspaper was near the top of the list, wasn't it? Top of the list of what? Of the, of the perpetrators, those who were carrying out this sort of practice. And you, you well know that. Well, you also well know that not a single person has made any formal or legal complaint against the Daily Mirror for phone hacking. Not one. So what, why would you say that? 
Have you listened to recordings of what you knew to be illegally, illegally obtained voicemail messages? I did not believe so, no. Well, you either did or you didn't. I don't think it's a question of, of belief. No, have, have you listened to recordings of what you knew to be illegally obtained voicemail messages? I do not believe so. Brian Leveson would conclude that Piers Morgan's testimony on this was utterly unpersuasive. Piers Morgan still denies any knowledge of phone hacking while he was editor, but there was a widespread sense after Leveson that the Mirror Group was unfinished business, and that sense doesn't seem to have been misplaced. In recent years, the group has paid out more than £75 million to settle phone hacking claims. Prince Harry's fractious relationship with Piers Morgan dates back to when he was a schoolboy at Eton. In his memoir, Harry recounts how the Mirror published a story about him breaking his thumb playing rugby. This broke an agreement to leave the princes alone while they were at school. Ever since, Prince Harry has referred to Piers Morgan as the thumb. In turn, Piers Morgan seems fixated on both Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Personal relationship with Meghan Markle or had one and she cut you off. Piers Morgan walked off Good Morning Britain, one of the country's most popular TV shows, after an outburst about Meghan Markle. To trash her. Okay, I'm done with this. No, no, no. Sorry, no. Uh, uh, Sorry. So, do you know what? That's pathetic. You can trash her, maybe not my. No, 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 no. See you later. I'm being. And he's since been very vocal in his criticism of the pair. The claims he's made this week have detonated a bomb. But this weapons-grade hypocrite has done nothing more than reduce his own reputation to rubble. And after torching what's left of the bridge, in fact, the spat between Prince Harry and Piers Morgan has a personal edge. But if you pay close attention to the particulars of claim, you can see that it's hard for the prince to put Piers Morgan personally in his sights. For example, he'd already left the mirror before the alleged intrusion into Chelsea Davies' life got going. In that sense, Prince Harry didn't cross paths with Piers Morgan nearly as much as he did with other editors. Of course, it's possible to blame someone for helping to establish a culture that lingers and does damage after they've left the editor's chair. And it's very clear that Prince Harry finds Piers Morgan culturally toxic. I asked Piers Morgan to respond to the allegations in Prince Harry's privacy claim that concern him. Piers Morgan told me, I wish Prince Harry all the very best in protecting invasions of privacy from himself. But the person alleged to the argument between them leaves unanswered an important question. How much of Prince Harry's fight against the press is strategic? And how much is score-settling? The police made more than a hundred arrests over phone hacking. Of all those arrests, only one top editor was eventually convicted. Andy Coulson was sentenced to 18 months in jail. All the other convictions were of private investigators, except for five journalists, including Graham Johnson. Graham Johnson says he went to the Metropolitan Police before they came to him and admitted to a limited period of phone hacking. He claims he did it for just one week in 2001. But he was tried anyway, 
and sentenced in 2014 to one year suspended for two years and some community service. But this uneven outcome, the sense of an underclass thrown under the bus, has returned to haunt the tabloid's more powerful figures and created a dilemma for Prince Harry. When you come into the office, there's a, there's a funny smell. The smell of the paper decomposing, right? Well, it probably dates back some of it. 40 years? You know, 50 years? A small office on the third floor of a building on London's Fleet Street, old newspaper land, no more than three metres wide and about six long. Floor-to-ceiling shelves cover each wall. They're crammed with box files, The spines reveal dates, legal cases, and the who's who of film stars, TV personalities, and royalty dating back decades. In one corner is a stack of cardboard boxes relating to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. This is not a newsroom. It's a war room, where a convicted phone hacker is now busy investigating wrongdoing by the tabloid press. So we could have a situation where refuses to settle, it goes to trial. That's right, yeah. And you could potentially be in court yeah. as a witness. Yeah, I'd be happy to give evidence, yeah. Now he's a witness and, through his reporting, an investigator for the claimants. He works in this war room alongside members of Hacked Off, the group of phone-hacking victims, some wealthy celebrity funders of the group, press reform campaigners and lawyers working for them, often on a no-win, no-fee basis. One of those lawyers is David Sherborne, and it was in the autumn of 2019 that he was introduced by Elton John to Prince Harry, who thought him... A lovely fellow, who knew more about the phone-hacking scandal than anyone I'd ever met. The timing was fortuitous. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle were stepping back from the royal family. Prince Harry was suddenly free to fire his first missile across the Atlantic and pursue what he's calling his life's work, to hold the press to account. And in doing so, he hasn't just teamed up with lawyers and celebrities, but also with some of the very people who were paid to snoop on his private life. Men like Graham Johnson, who says he was at the News of the World when he was first asked to use a private investigator to find the contact. He could get you the ex-directory phone number, then the friends and family connected to that phone number, which is great because you can ring all the people connected to that person. Then you could go on and on and on, you know, bank accounts, medical records, whatever. Graham Johnson's phone hacking came later, after he says he was shown how to do it by one of his editors. And he said, I'd like you to listen to the voicemails of two people, or one which developed into two. It was a soap opera star and her uh, allegedly gangster boyfriend at the time. And at the time, she was married and the allegation was she was having an affair with, with, a, with a crime figure. So Graham Johnson listened to the soap star's private messages and his editor kept up the pressure. And he'd be on the phone saying, any new messages, any messages? No, no, no. And then what he'd do is try and catch you out. He'd go, I've just heard a new message on the phone. Have you got that? And I hadn't, you know. And he'd go, what's going on? You know, how come you're not picking these things up? You've got to pick them up, either transcribe them or give me the information quickly. Because once they knew her plans, they would send their reporter and photographer. And then things would go from bad to worse. From phone hacking 
to trespassing and bugging. He came in the room and he said, he said, listen, you don't no need to watch the door now. He said, because I put a listening device in there. In the room. Denise Welch's room. So we'll know now whether she comes in or not without you having to watch it. Now, I knew, I didn't know voicemail interception was illegal, I didn't know using private investigators was illegal, right? but I knew that was illegal. We've been unable to corroborate the specific allegation of a listening device, and Graham Johnson says he walked off the job, but the article, headlined Exclusive Drugs Shame of TV Denise, appeared under his byline. Graham Johnson says he became disillusioned at the Sunday Mirror and he left in 2005. He freelanced until his phone hacking conviction in 2014, after which he found that the newspapers blacklisted him. So, with work drying up and a sense that his former bosses had escaped real scrutiny, he began investigating the newspapers. The convicted poacher turned gamekeeper. In a nutshell, I found out about phone hacking at the Sun, right? I found out about the industrial-scale use of private investigators at the Sun. The police never had any evidence of phone hacking at the Sun under Rebecca Brooks's editorship of the newspaper. Newsgroup continues to deny any phone hacking took place at the Sun. But thanks to newly unearthed material, Prince Harry is able to claim that during Rebecca Brooks's editorship of the Sun, the tabloid published 18 articles based on unlawfully acquired information, a claim that hasn't been tested in court. And there's more. I found out about phone hacking at the mail titles. I, I already knew about industrial-scale use of private investigators at the mail papers, but they denied phone hacking and they, de- they said they'd stop using PIs in 2007. I found out that that wasn't true, you know. Uh, I found out about landline tapping. The mail titles have previously denied these allegations. But Graham Johnson was on a mission. Crucially, he spoke to several private investigators. When the news of the world phone hacking scandal erupted, the public perception was that my services were only used by news of the world. This is not the case, as my services were used by other papers. Men like Glenn Mulcair, who insisted they hadn't just worked for the news of the world. Other papers had paid them too. Then, he took a call from a private investigator in Los Angeles. If you want to find out something, there's always a way you can do it. And uh, these newspapers would offer unlimited amounts of money to pay for it. A man whose name he had only come across in court filings, Dano Hanks, who takes us back to Prince Harry's story. If you know how to go through all those databases, you can find out everything anybody ever wanted to know about anybody. Their social security number, their date of birth, mother's maiden name. He started telling me what he did for the papers and he said, well, I work for the papers, all the papers, and I've got this archive of hundreds, if not thousands of invoices for all the the illegal material that I sold to the papers, the unlawful material and all the searches that I've done. And um, one of the stories he gave me was, uh, was about Meghan Markle. And he, he showed me this report that he'd done into Meghan Markle for The Sun. I, get a, I got an email from someone at The Sun, you know, requesting uh, the usual 
background check on Meghan Markle. As soon as I sent that report to them, they sent me a request for, oh, can you get us a report on her mother and her father? Okay. I think there was a sister in there, too. But, you know, I supplied them with the information on ex-boyfriends and that sort of thing. Dano, the son say they always ask you to act lawfully in in your work. Is that true? That's not true. They, what they did is they had me sign a document saying I would only act lawfully with a wink and a nod that they would continue to use me. They said, oh, we just have to have a piece, piece of paper that you're not doing, you know, anything unlawful. Well, the fact was, I wasn't doing anything unlawful in the United States. Obtaining information for private investigator use is perfectly lawful. The Sun has previously denied asking private investigators to act unlawfully and denied an awareness of unlawful behavior. Danu explains that in the US, private investigators are granted greater access than journalists to certain databases. What would happen was newspapers would approach me and say, can you use your private investigator access? So they were bypassing the rules and they were doing what I guess you guys call blagging. They were using that information to pretend to be that person and get data that wasn't authorized. Danu says he didn't know that was how it was being used. Really? A lot of people have asked me that. In a strange way, I was really naive. You know, I mean, for me, my stuff is data. You know, I don't think about, you know, the consequences of, you know, hitting a few keystrokes on my computer. I'm computer savvy. I'm not socially savvy. When I chat to Dano, he's in his office in Los Angeles. In the background, I can see his desk and his computer, where he says he's saved every search he's ever done for the British tabloids. He says he worked for them from the mid-80s right up until 2016, and that it represents a lot of searches. Some of those commissions now feature in the claims which Prince Harry is part of, against a newsgroup and associated newspapers, after Graham Johnson travelled to LA to meet Dano. Well, he flew out here and we spent two weeks. And he sat right next to me on my computer and he'd give me a name and he'd say, did you ever do a, per- a search on this person? And I'd run, look it up in my computer and I'd say, oh yeah, I did that. We went through there and he started telling me about everything, you know. Said, would you be willing to testify to the high court via a statement that I would give them? A, notarized, under perjury type statement. And he would, uh, you know, the, the lawyers for uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry would draw up this, this questionnaire and I'd answer it. With your evidence and things you know, would that help establish that um, the editors, the senior editors and executives knew? Yeah, they, for them to say they didn't know what was going on, you know, that's just... I don't know a polite way to say it, but it's bullshit, you know? And I think I think it's such an obvious thing that any jury would see it right away. 
but the jury might also be concerned about a witness's credibility. Dano Hanks has served multiple prison sentences. His switch from private investigator for the tabloids to witness for their victims coincides with his conviction for extortion, after he defaced a family gravesite in Pennsylvania to intimidate someone who owed money to a gambling ring. A conviction that stripped him of his private investigator license. But, according to Dano Hanks anyway, Prince Harry's lawyers have worked with him to build a case. But in a case like this, the only witnesses to the wrongdoing are going to be people who were involved in wrongdoing. There's no way around that. The claimants themselves don't know what was happening inside uh, the newspaper. All they know is that strange things happened to them and then private information ended up in being published. The defendants aren't going to um, uh, give that evidence. So it's inevitable that the only witnesses of what went on inside that can that are uh, available will be people who were involved with it. So I think the court just has to deal with that. This is Tamsin Allen again, Head of Media and Information Law at Bindman's. Have most claimants settled their claims? Yes, most claimants have settled their claims and some of the settlements have been confidential, some of them have been public, but they've very large numbers have settled. The settlements haven't been front-page news, but Prince Harry's involvement is making everyone sit up and take notice again. The real question is whether any of these claims will ever get to court. Most individual claimants will settle. There's a sort of mechanism in the court to encourage people to settle. And if a good offer is made, an acceptable offer, then the person bringing the claim has an incentive to accept it. Because if they don't and it goes to trial, and they do as well or less well than the offer, they have to pay all the costs to the opposing party. And that would more than wipe out damages in most cases. But you don't get your day in court. Crucially, you don't get accountability. You might want to cross-examine executives, and you might want some sort of public accountability, but in fact, all you're entitled to is... The disclosure that happens along the, during the case and a judgment and payment of damages. And if Prince Harry really wants public accountability, then he's unlikely to settle. Prince Harry claims that tabloid's behaviour towards him caused him considerable distress and the loss of his dignity or standing. He wants substantial damages and the identity of each and every employee or agent who obtained and used his information. Like the other claimants, he's asking the court to infer that senior executives and editors at the tabloids sanctioned hacking, blagging and private investigators. After all, the claimant's evidence makes the case that these activities were widespread, that the senior executives approved payments for them, that they took no steps to prevent them and, in the case of Newsgroup, that they then tried covering them up. The generic claim against Newsgroup alleges that senior executives ordered the deletion of all pre-January 2010 emails, including a single batch deletion of 20 million emails. The claimants say this order was given between January and February 2011, that is, 
after the commencement of the Met Police investigation into phone hacking at Newsgroup and other organisations, and after civil lawsuits were filed against the group over phone hacking. Newsgroup says that around 77% of all emails that could have been found in April 2010 are still there. It says, variously, that emails were deleted because of a security threat, a change in software and an office move. The Crown Prosecution Service considered charging Newsgroup with perverting the course of justice, but decided against it, because they had no evidence that the email deletions were ordered by one of the company's controlling minds, which is a requirement for corporate liability. Since the phone hacking scandal broke, Newsgroup has paid out more than £400 million in settlements and costs. A spokeswoman for Newsgroup told me that the company has been paying damages to those with claims against the news of the world since 2012, but that it doesn't accept any unlawful behaviour at the sun. Prince Harry has said that changing the media landscape in Britain is his life's work. His great allies in that quest are money and shame, the damages that newspapers will have to pay if his claims succeed and the embarrassment he can inflict on editors and owners. The body of evidence he's taking to court, what we can't see of it in his particulars of claim anyway, looks weighty. There are pages upon pages of alleged phone hacks and bugs. They tell Prince Harry's life story to date, from drugs at school to girlfriends and breakups and onwards. And his case might win the day. But even if it does... Until now, media groups have been able to soldier on in spite of the hefty damages they've had to pay for phone hacking. And shame is not Harry's to bestow. He needs the public to do that. Will they oblige? Harry has moved on now to California, and public opinion in the UK may have moved on too. It's unclear whether the public will demand change even if newspaper editors and owners are embarrassed in court. In a review of Spare in the London Review of Books, a publication not noted for its breathless coverage of the royal family, Andrew O'Hagan observes, Harry's life in the public eye has been one long panic attack, yet his plans to free himself are tangled up with a wish to be equal to the people he grew up with. He wants privilege, but he doesn't want to play the game. He wants freedom with none of the rules. In any case, some of the villains in Harry's story, not all, are yesterday's men and women. And even though it may be ever-present in Harry's mind, some of what he complains about may strike a lot of people as yesterday's news. He needs to stir up a tidal wave of public outrage to succeed in his life's work. But the sea looks flat calm at the moment and his chance of whipping up a storm looks dependent on him forcing his villains into the dock. Yet the tabloids have settled most of the privacy claims made against them before they've gone that far. People also understand that the media landscape has changed beyond recognition since the heyday of phone hacking. And ironically, Prince Harry himself is the best evidence of that. 
You only have to look at his ghost-written memoir, his Netflix documentary, Megan's podcast, the television interviews that he's granted to fellow celebrities and journalist friends, to understand how he's bypassing the traditional media. Prince Harry has become his own media brand, one whose power is growing while that of the tabloid slowly fades away. In this light, his legal claims look different. Maybe not so much a determined attempt to reform the press, but something more straightforward. An act of revenge for what happened, above all, in that tunnel in Paris in 1997. Thanks for listening. To access more of our journalism and invites to exclusive events, join Tortoise as a member. Visit tortoisemedia.com friend and use the code SLOW60 for a special offer today. This episode was written and reported by me, Paul Caruana Galizia. The producer was Katie Gunning. Sound design was by Tom Birchell. The editors were Jasper Corbett and Kerry Thomas. Hello, Tortoise listener. Are you on top of the news or is it on top of you? Don't worry, we've got the solution. Paper Cuts is the fast, funny daily podcast where we look at the wonder and weirdness of the British press. I'm Miranda Sawyer and every weekday I'm joined by top comedians and smart journalists for a roller coaster ride through the daily papers. Tune in and we'll bring you the biggest, the weirdest and the most entertaining stories of the day in one handy half-hour package. That's Paper Cuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Subscribe on your favourite app.